Today's scripture reading is Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as well as 15, and Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. The seventh day God rest. Uh, in the Pew Bible, this is page 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Colossians <clears throat> chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoers will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. This is God's word. Thank you, Ipe. We are moving into a new section in the series that we have been doing. Uh, if you are just joining us, our normal practice in, on Sunday morning is to work through books of the Bible and to see what God is saying in, in different books of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. This year we've been doing something a little bit different. We've been asking a bigger question uh, in terms of what difference does the gospel of Jesus make for all of life? We are uh, convinced that the good news of Christ is not only that which reunites us and reconciles us with God as sinners in need of his grace. It's also that which empowers us for walking with God at every stage of life and every facet of life. And so we've been exploring that in different venues, uh, from home and school, in the church, and now we begin looking at the gospel at work this morning. And so please pray with me as we think together about this. Gracious God, we love you. And we are so privileged to be able to open your word and hear from you. And that is our prayer this morning, that we would hear from you. And so meet us, Lord, by your spirit. Take your word, apply it to our hearts, and give us clarity uh, in what it means to follow you, Lord, in all of life, but especially as we think now about our jobs, about our work, about our labor. Lord, show us where your grace is in that process. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, apart from sleeping, there are few things that we spend more time doing in our life than work. Uh, the average is somewhere in the 90,000-hour range. That's just over 11 solid years of your existence, if you're counting. We spend a lot of time at work doing our jobs, whether it's uh, cleaning toilets or brokering deals or serving food or overseeing a supply chain or changing diapers or studying for exams, we uh, spend a lot of time hard at work. And it's pretty consuming, and it's rarely easy. Uh, some of the studies recently have described that 80% of people are dissatisfied with their job. So if you think about that, you know, you're sitting next to five other people, Four of you don't like your job right now. 
that accurate? Uh, 25% of employees say that work is their main source of stress. And 40% say that their job is, quote, very or extremely stressful. 64% of Americans canceled vacations last year. One-third did it for work-related reasons. And 25% of people check into work hourly while on vacation via email and phone. By way of illustration or confession, however you look at it, I wrote this sermon while on vacation this week. (laughs) Couldn't get it done before we left. And depending on what we think of our jobs as we're surrounded by this consuming thing called work, we're often tempted to treat our work in one of two ways. For many of us, work is a curse. It's a necessary evil. It is a means to the end of what really matters in life, namely pleasure. We like eating, we like playing, so therefore we need money and we have to go to work. Uh, But we will do, you know, avoid it if we can, and we'll certainly avoid those kinds of careers and jobs that are, you know, lower class or lower paying because, you know, we don't like work. It's a curse. We live instead for, for the weekend, for weekends on the Cape, or we go through the motions on the job. We sneak in a little extra time for Minecraft or fritter away our our time on Facebook when we should be working hard. We'll do anything to get a day off. And the music industry has supplied us with a ready playlist for this mindset. You know, it's interesting. Some of these are are classics, but you you can think of take this job and shove it. I grew up listening to country. That was one on the radio a lot. Or nine to five, working for the weekend, Just another manic Monday. We've got whole playlists that fuel this mindset that work is a necessary evil. It's a curse. Uh, Tim Keller summarizes this in his excellent book on the subject, worth getting, uh, called Every Good Endeavor. He says that the only good work in this view is work that helps us make money so that we can support our families and pay others to do menial work. We believe that lower status or lower paying work is an assault on our dignity. Uh, One result of this belief is that many people take jobs that they are not suited for at all, choosing to aim for careers that do not fit their gifts but promise higher wages and prestige. Another result is that many people will choose to be unemployed rather than to do work that they feel is beneath them. And most service and manual labor jobs fall into that category. Uh, Often people who have made it into the so-called knowledge class show great disdain for concierges or handymen or dry cleaners or cooks or gardeners and others who hold service jobs. And so work is a curse. That's one of the ways we're tempted to treat our labor. The other temptation, of course, instead of despising our job, is to worship it to see it as a cure-all, to treat it as an identity-giving Savior who promises life and happiness and fulfillment and personal satisfaction. And so we become married to our jobs instead. You know, we, we become workaholics. But the job we worship, ironically, becomes all about us, ultimately. 
Our success is measured in terms of self-fulfillment and career building, not in our contribution to the company or our service to the community. And so today you look at the, at the career landscape and it's very fluid, very transient, uh, changing companies, even careers multiple times in one's life. It's not uncommon for people to sacrifice their marriage or their families or their friends on the altar of upward mobility and personal achievement. And so we're tempted to worship our jobs, to see it as the answer to all of our problems and our longings for pleasure and satisfaction. But beyond those two temptations, either to worship it or to despise our job, in between there, there's just a whole lot of confusion when it comes to what we spend most of our lives doing, especially for the Christian. Uh, For our young people, there is that Uh, basic and yet most dreaded question so what do you want to be when you grow up and you know it's like nails on a chalkboard for every junior or senior or college student nowadays but you know it's a good question how do i pick a career that's a confusing thing to think about do i focus on what i'm good at do i focus on what's going to make me the most money what will provide the kind of lifestyle that I want or, or the lifestyle I feel entitled to? Do I focus on the coolness factor? Look for a coveted tech job at Google or something like that where I can ride a skateboard or work. Or do I do something that will really contribute to the well-being of society, some sort of humanitarian or social justice industry? And if I'm a Christian then how does my faith integrate with my work, whatever that job is? If I'm really serious about serving God, does that mean that I need to take a career in vocational ministry, become a missionary or a pastor or a campus minister? If if I'm going to integrate my faith and work, is that what I have to do? remember participating in an interview with a pastor several years ago Uh, when asked why he left his so-called secular job and went into ministry uh, kind of mid-career, his answer was that he now wanted to do something that really mattered for God's kingdom. He did that, and that was fine, but now I really want to serve God. Which raises the question, is ministry the only industry where I can be serious about serving God? What about the medical Industry. What about business or art or service? Good questions to ask. And, and many of us, I think, buy into that category, that, that the really serious people who love God, if I'm going to do that, I have to go into full-time ministry of some sense. And sadly, the church hasn't always done a good job of helping people connect the dots between Sunday morning and Monday through Friday. That's one of the reasons we begin to think those kinds of things. One author writes that many who are Christians complain of a Sunday-Monday gap where their Sunday worship hour bears little or no relevance to the issues that they face in their Monday workplace hours. So these are big questions, especially when we consider how much time we spend doing our jobs. What difference does the gospel of Jesus make for our work? That's the question we're after. 
philosophers Greg Gilbert and Sebastian Traeger ask in their book, uh, The Gospel at Work, which is another helpful resource, uh, the way they phrase the question is this, how can I do my work, not just as a way to put food on the table, but as a sold out disciple of Jesus? What's the point of work anyway in a Christian's life? Is there any meaning to it beyond providing goods and services, making money, and providing a living for myself and my family? And we can answer their question. Does applying my work to my faith simply mean being a better evangelist on the job or being a better employee? Um, Does it mean working to create beauty or working for humanitarian needs or making a lot of money so I can give a lot of money? What does it mean to bring my faith to bear on my work? Those are some of the questions we're going to be wrestling with the next several weeks in this part of our series that we're calling the gospel at work. And today what I want to do is kind of help us step back and take in the big picture of what the Bible teaches about work in general. I call it a theology of work. Namely, that work is neither a curse nor a cure-all nor an idol, but it is a calling by God to participate in the flourishing of his creation through the redemptive work of Christ. So work is not a curse. It's not a cure-all. It is a calling by God to participate in the flourishing of his creation through the redemptive work of Christ. And to see that, we need to go back to the beginning, back to Genesis and God's design for creation, which surprisingly has a lot to say about the place of work in our lives. And so if you still have your Bibles in front of you, turn again to Genesis chapter 1. And the first thing that we need to observe here is that in the Bible, that the Bible introduces God to us as many things, but one of those things is as a worker, as someone who is at work. So Genesis 1, verses 1 through 2, very first verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I don't know how often we stop and think about it, but the act of creating everything out of nothing is not easy. You know, we we rightly consider that work. Now, some of us might think, yeah, but he's God. He can do anything. But notice the way that God creates here. He doesn't bring everything into existence completed and finished in its initial state. We're told that the earth he created is formless and void. It's empty. That means that the creation God has made, he made it with work still to be done in the creating process. And that's what you see unfold in, day, in, the, in the six days of creation described in Genesis 1. God at work, first forming his creation and then filling it. God is a worker. And we see that work from another angle in chapter 2, verses 7 to 8. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, 
and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God gets his hands dirty, quite literally, in making his creation. God is at work. And you see that in the summary of the, the creation days at the beginning of chapter 2, which Epe read earlier for us. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Work is not a curse. It's part of God's creational design, and we see it first and foremost in God himself at work. Tim Keller summarizes that in the beginning, then, God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later, or something that human beings were created to do, but that was beneath the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have a more exalted inauguration. But notice that God, in these opening chapters of Genesis, God is not the only one who is working in these early chapters. When God creates the man and the woman in his image, he doesn't tell them to spend their days kicking back, sipping margaritas while he does everything else. He plants them in the garden to work and to keep it. Paradise, in the biblical sense, is not a month-long vacation in the Virgin Islands. There's work to be done. You see it right even in chapter 1. When God creates the man and the woman, he immediately gives them work to do. Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so just as when God created you know, the heavens and earth initially with work still to be done, so he creates humans with work to be done after he's finished his creation. There's work to do, and it's this work of bringing all of life under the reign and rule of God, to, to bring his rule to, and, and to bring creation under that rule. And it's not just work that God does, it's work that he includes us in. We have work to do by design of creation. Again, Genesis 2.15 says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden so that he could have a perpetual vacation. No, to work it and to keep it. And it's interesting that those two words for work and keep are the same words later used to describe the priest's duty in the temple of working and keeping for God. Adam's work was his worship in the creational design. And so we have a role as God's people in God's place, in God's creation. And central to that role is what we call work. And that means that our work, our jobs, by nature of what work is, by God's design, that our work has both purpose and dignity, whatever vocation it is. 
It's not a, it's, it's not a curse. It's not a cure-all. But it is a calling by God to participate in the flourishing of his creation. So we think of our work as a, as a job, as something we must go to or do. But if we see it in, in God's design, we should see it more as a vocation or a calling, something God has given us to do for his honor and for the benefit of others. And when we begin to see it as not merely a job but a calling, then we can see the purpose and dignity in every legitimate occupation. They all work together for the good and beauty of God's earth and for the, the benefit of the people who live on God's earth. From the farmer who grows the crops to the teenager who sacks the groceries at the store. From the laborer who pours the concrete to the realtor who sells the house. The realtor wouldn't have anything to sell if it weren't for those who worked hard in construction. From the corporate executive to the daycare provider who watches her children. Every legitimate occupation has its place in the flourishing of God's creation. And all of that is by God's design. God has given us the privilege of serving him through our work. Every job has meaning. Every job has dignity. Because every job, whether it's performed by a Christian or not, uses gifts that are supplied by God to contribute to the overall well-being of human society under God. The Protestant reformers did a lot to help us regain this sense of what we call vocation or calling for our work. Because not, you know, it's, it's not only common for us today to think that serving God means a ministry job. That was pretty much the conclusion of the church for several hundred years under Christendom. And it wasn't until the Protestant reformers started thinking more theologically about this that we got some clarity on this. So Gene Veith, who is a Lutheran scholar, explains that the word calling, or uh, its Latinate form vocation, has long been used in reference to sacred ministry in the religious orders. Martin Luther was the first to use the word vocation to refer also to secular offices and occupations. I mean, today the word is commonplace for us. But behind the term is the notion that every legitimate kind of work or social function is a distinct calling from God, requiring unique God-given gifts and skills and talents. All of work is an opportunity to serve God. And that means that whereas, yes, it's important for many to go into ministry, as we call it, we need to get rid of that secular, sacred, distinct, secular, sacred distinction and, and see all of life as service to God. Veith explains that all vocations are equal before God. Pastors, monks, nuns, and popes are no holier than farmers, shopkeepers, dairy maids, and latrine diggers. In the spiritual kingdom, peasants are equal to kings. All are sinful beings who have been loved and redeemed by Christ. Christ is what makes us all together. And so if we begin to see our work in light of God's creational design, we see it as a calling, and that gives dignity and purpose to every legitimate job. 
not just ministry. Seeing our work this way also calls us to a higher standard for what we do in our work. Because if I'm serving God, not just when I'm singing Sunday morning or teaching a Sunday school class, but when I'm writing a grant proposal or selling software on Tuesday night, if I'm serving God then, then it matters how I do my job as well, doesn't it? I need to do it, for instance, with diligence, not laziness. I need to work hard. There's a massive temptation for us to to kind of set ourselves up to make as much money as possible, as fast as possible, with as little effort as possible. That's kind of our, that's the dream. That's, that's, if we find that, boy, you've, you've arrived. God calls us to something better, the chance to reflect him by working hard, not by being lazy. It also means that I do my work with moral integrity, that I'm not taking advantage of others, whether it's my boss or my customers, uh, through underhanded or deceptive practices. Again, there's a great temptation that it, if I can increase my profit margin or, or my market share or pad the bottom line in some way by paying, playing fast and loose with this or that and no one will know the difference, there's a great temptation in, in sacrificing our moral integrity for the sake of so-called success. God calls us to something better. He calls us to work according to the standards of his word with honesty, righteousness, and integrity. And it means that if my work is service to God, that I also do it with honorable motives. So it's not just what I do and how I do it, but why I do it. That matters to God as well. That I'm not simply seeking my own interests, but I am loving my neighbors and I'm serving others. Again, Keller reminds us that a job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it and you do it for them rather than for yourself. So we need to see ourselves as serving God and others in our job, not just ourselves. Thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person and undermines society itself. Boy, how we've seen that in our culture. And so, seeing work as a vocation, it, 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 re, it uh, restores or, or helps me see the dignity and purpose in my work. It, it tells me that my motives matter and my ethics matter, my integrity and diligence matters. But ultimately, seeing my work as a calling from God means performing my work as an act of worship to God. Again, you see that in those early verses in Genesis, that Adam was to work and to keep it. That was his service to God. But you see it on display again in Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Do I have that mindset when I show up to work Monday morning? That my boss who I answer to, yes, they might be in the office next to me or, or, or in, you know, upstairs in one of those offices with the mirrored windows so I can't see who they're looking out on. But my ultimate boss is not that person but the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I serve. That's who I represent. Do I see my work as worship? 
And so that's what God calls us to. But the minute we begin taking all of that in, thinking of these standards and this vision to see our, our jobs as a calling from God, is the minute we begin to kind of see all of the ways we've fallen short of what God calls us to in our work. Moreover, we see how far short our work has fallen in satisfying us. You know, stalled projects and profit shortfalls and pink slips. Work is rarely easy. It doesn't always work out. And so we have this standard, but then we also have this reality that we live in day in, day out, where we fail God at work and work sometimes fails us. And all of that reminds us, on the one hand, that work is not God, and that's a good reminder. When work fails us, that's a reminder, your work is not your Savior. And, and one of the reasons God wove into our work week a day of rest was that very reminder that, that you can step aside from your work and the world will not spin out of control. Your, your prophets will not fail because I'm God and you're not. That's why we rest remind ourselves that God is God and our job is not. But, but the difficulty of work also reminds us that something dreadful has happened to God's original design. That the labor we spend ourselves doing doesn't work the way it was supposed to in those opening chapters of Genesis. Something has happened, something that we call the fall. When Adam and Eve disregarded God and his rule and decided they would do a better job, running the universe than he would. And the consequences of, of them turning their backs on God were devastating and comprehensive. We often think of it in terms of a broken relationship with God. That now that sin has entered the world, we're separated from God personally. That is true, and that is devastating. And we need a Savior to, to redeem us. But one of the things we don't often think about as a result of the fall is the fact that the earth itself has been cursed, which means that the environment in which we're called to work out our jobs no longer works well for us. And you see it in the curse that God lays out in response to Adam's sin in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. And to Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what was designed to be a blessing in the beginning became hard because of sin. And so ever since then, our work has been in some ways a curse. It's not a curse, but it feels like it because it doesn't always go the way we're supposed to. And we'll talk more about that kind of fruitless and frustrating work in a couple of weeks. But we see here that, that for God's vision of our work to be realized, something has to happen. Something bigger than me and you. For this vision of work as a calling, we need something bigger than us. Left to ourselves, it's something that we can't 
fully participate in and enjoy or, or feel any sort of satisfaction. Instead, we feel like the preacher in Ecclesiastes is striving after the wind. And this is where the gospel comes into clearer focus as it relates to our work. What we, because of our sin, are unable to do in life and relationships and in work, God has done, is doing, and will do for us and through us through the redemptive work of Christ. That's where the gospel comes into play. Like his father, Jesus is a worker. We see that in the way that he comes to us in the New Testament. He says in John 5, 17, My father is working until now, and I am working. He's not just showing up and saying, All of you just kind of bow down and take care of me now. Cart me around on one of those lifts so that everybody can see how special I am. He comes and he gets busy at work. We rightly refer to what Jesus accomplished on the cross as his redemptive work. I don't know if we ever stop and think about that, but it was his redemptive work. But think about even before Jesus went to the cross, even before he launched his ministry, what was he busy doing? Philip Jensen reflects that if God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. As a day laborer. Isn't that interesting? That what Jesus spent most of his time doing before his last three years of ministry was working hard. Isn't that interesting? Jesus redeems our work, not only through his death on the cross, that's where he ultimately redeems it, but even by being a faithful worker before his father. You know, where we fall short in, in our diligence or in our integrity or in our motives, Jesus stands before his father as a perfect representative in life, in relationships, and in work. And as our representative, therefore, he's actually qualified to stand before his father in enduring the curse that came because of our work, the curse of sin. Not only the holy anger of his father against our sin, but the very curse of creation itself. He bore in his body on the tree that he might bring new life out of it. And that means that the resurrection is not only the defeat of death, it is the down payment of a new world. A new creation that is free of sin's curse and therefore free of the frustrations that we live with day in and day out. Where God's initial vision of creation, so our intimate relationship with God and our service for God will be finally and fully realized when Jesus returns. We have hope for our work. The gospel tells us that even though you and I deserve God's judgment for our sin, that there's grace and forgiveness for that sin through Jesus Christ. And that's something that we don't work for. That's an interesting part. We were created for hard work, but guess what? Our salvation is not something that we work for. It's something Jesus accomplishes by his 
work for us. He asks us instead to trust in him. John 6.29, he puts it very interestingly in John 6.29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You want to work for God? Trust Jesus. That's what he asks of us. And through faith in Christ, that broken relationship with God is restored. We're accepted by him. Again, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And that is what frees us to be good workers for the Lord. This gospel, this good news. The gospel, because it restores us to God, it restores the dignity and purpose of our work. And we can see it once again as contributing to God's greater vision for the flourishing of this earth. We serve a God who is incredible. It frees us to make career choices, not based primarily on what we're going to get out of it, but on how we can honor God and serve others. Moreover, as Keller reminds us, the gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves and secure our identity through work. For we are already proven and secure in Christ. It also frees us from a condescending attitude toward less sophisticated labor and from envy of more exalted work. All work now becomes a way to love God who saved us freely and by extension, a way to love our neighbor. That's what the gospel does to our work. And that means we can again approach it with diligence and integrity and motives because not only are we redeemed to Christ, but we have the Spirit of God in us that's enabling us and giving us the strength to walk in obedience, to say no to those temptations, and to say yes to God. And because of the gospel, we have a hope that our work, for all of its frustrations, for all of the times we dread pulling ourselves out of bed Monday morning, that our work will not ultimately be in vain. Because it is part of God's redemptive story and because of the power of his resurrection that is already broken into this fallen world through the resurrection of Christ. The Apostle Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Whatever we do in honor of God, as service to God, even if the results far, fall, fall far short of our expectations and dreams, it will not be in vain because God is at work in it. And so applying the gospel to our lives, we're going to continue exploring what this looks like for several weeks, but it's not just about being a better evangelist at work or being a better employee or working to create beauty or, or serve humanitarian needs, it, though it includes all of those things. The gospel is what redeems us for God and redeems our work for God. According to the gospel, our work is neither a curse nor an idol. It is a calling to participate in the flourishing of his creation through the redemption that we have in Jesus. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, thank you that your grace and mercy not only touches us when we gather here, not only draws us closer to you personally, your grace and mercy extend to every part of life, every time card, every email, every business deal, every conversation with a boss or a client, every swing of the hammer or click of the mouse. You are with us, and we have the privilege of serving you. And so, God, I pray that you would give us your perspective of work. Help us see our labor not as a a necessary evil and not as a false savior, but as a calling from you to serve you and to serve others with joy. And, Lord, we pray that you would use our work to make much of you. And whether it's serving neighbors or or cultivating your good earth or sharing the gospel of your grace, use us to display to the world, not despite our jobs, but through our jobs, that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we pray the same, Lord, for our partners in ministry, many missionaries and organizations that are serving you in specific and unique ways. I think this morning of the Emmanuel Gospel Center and their service for the city of Boston. Lord, would you use them and bless them in their work for racial reconciliation, in the work that they do to stem poverty and human trafficking in the city. May they shine the light of Christ in some of the darkest corners of our area. And may the watching world see and take note of the power of the gospel to change lives. We pray in a similar light, Lord, for our nation in light of the recent videos exposing the the even deeper evils of abortion. Lord, every life is precious to you. Every child is your creation. And we pray that we would stop playing God and start worshiping you instead. May you use these videos, this moment in our cultural history as an opportunity to bring an end to this utter devastating evil. God, we pray for grace and healing, for cleansing and forgiveness for those who have experienced abortion. Lord, it is not the unforgivable sin. There is healing and newness of life with you. But we pray that you'd bring an end to the industry, God, that, that, that your will and your ways would conquer. And Lord, we need the very grace that we pray for others, we need it right here in our congregation as well. We need it for the daily decisions of whether or not we're going to walk with you, whether we're going to honor our word, honor our marriages, lay down our lives for our friends, for our children. We need it as we trust you through various trials, Lord. And we pray that you would meet those among us who are facing trials in different ways. God, we think of, Lord, would you meet them Not only to bring healing to their physical bodies, but but to bring a healing to their heart, to remind them that you are with them and that you know what they're going through because Christ has borne in his body all our diseases and all our sin. Lord, we ask all of these things in his powerful name.